Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Bell Hooks and Jars on Radio Fodder. You're with Sam and Danushi. Today, we're bringing a very special episode to you. It's finally time for finally us to talk about Gilmore Girls. Finally. I've been, my entire life has led up to this exact day, this exact moment. That is exactly right. And the, where, thing, the thing about this episode is we went in not expecting to talk about Gilmore Girls. No. And then but, in our research and planning, it just happened. Yeah. Do we do we want to do a, a recap of the week? Or... Yeah. Yeah, it's been a week. Let's do that first. So yeah. how's, how's your week been? Again, still battling COVID, the Got plague. The plague. Still testing positive. Oh, my God. For having no bitches, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sam? How are you going? <laughs> well, oh, not no. good. Mm. So I had a major, after last week's endostravaganza, I had a major flare-up. So Very timely. Yeah, Wednesday through Friday, I could barely eat or sleep because I was in so much pain. And then on Friday, I rocked up at the women's at emergency and I was like, hey, besties, I feel like shit. Um, I got there at 7.30. They didn't let me into a room until 11 and then Mm. I didn't see a doctor till one and then they were like yeah there's nothing we can do for you you're just having an endo flare-up but have some opioids yeah but do you want some oxy and I was like I'll take it (laughs) yeah respectfully I'll take respectfully I'll take it so um then like zooted on oxy they gave me five milligrams of endone um and I then went, this is at like 3 a.m., almost 4 at this point. I go across the road to the 24-hour pharmacy at Peter Mac to get some more oxy for the weekend with the script they've given me. Yeah. 4 a.m. at Peter Mac Pharmacy. They're playing the Funny Girl soundtrack. And that was just insane. That was an insane toy. <laughs> like, that, that pharmacy has insane vibes. <laughs> it, just because it's one open 24 hours, it's a very weird shape. It's like oh, a really yeah, it's very long, long. And so, yeah, it just has insane vibes. Insane vibes. Yeah. And also they, they do shit like they sell $16 toothpaste. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah. they sell, I remember I was going to buy some hyaluronic acid because I there's no price lines near me, so I can't get the ordinary one and I needed it. All they'd and have then, was La Roche-Posay, which is like yeah. $50. Yeah, so yeah. it's an insane pharmacy. It's an insane, there's insane energy in that pharmacy. Yeah. Um. So I go there and then I go across the other road to 7-Eleven Once again, I am zooted, absolutely Mm -hmm. zooted on Oxy right now. Um, Not right now, but when this story is taking place. Mm. So I go to 7-Eleven, four in the morning, (laughs) vibes at Flemington Road, 7-Eleven, insane at this hour. You you messaged me, vibes at 7-Eleven, Flemington Road, rancid. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you texted me, rancid vibes. Yeah. It was. It was like... um, just like it's what you'd expect it for him at 7-Eleven on phone. Yeah. Okay. And 7-Eleven of- for wait, is this a 7-Eleven's global? I was gonna be like for the global listeners, 7-Eleven is like a <laughs> like so a I think they're literally American. Yeah, I don't know why I thought that. 
<laughs> oh yeah. For the, niche for, for the Australian brand. for the Australian listeners, a seven eleven is like a servo. Yeah, it's a servo. Um, and also when I was there, I tried to get a hot chocolate because oh the other thing that happened as I was leaving the hospital, my doctor was discharging me and she was giving me all the information on what I had to do. She's talking to me, blah blah blah. And then as she's talking to me, I just faint. <laughs> You didn't tell me you fainted. Didn't I? I fainted. No. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Okay. So I went over to 7-Eleven because I was like, mm, I think my blood sugar is a bit low. Okay. And what I wanted at 4 a.m., 7-Eleven, mm. and it was quite cold, was a hot yeah, chocolate. Yeah, the, the 7-Eleven hot chocolate is actually quite good. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted a hot chocolate. No, but what they happened? Was, no, they they had them. What happened was I press the button on the machine. I hold down hot milk. Ah, uh, cold milk, stone cold. No. Yeah. So then I'm standing there with a cold chalky. No. 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 I'm not and like at all. A a glutinous mess because you know that that shit's not like mixing well in with the cold milk. So that's gross. It was chunky. Yeah, oh, I just no. ended up. I then got an Uber home. I also, I also, while I was there, I got some Sprite. Um, um, you know, I'm addicted to Sprite. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I got, oh, I got a little caramel slice. Mm, yum. Yum, yum, yum. And some muesli bars for later. And then I took an Uber home, holding, clutching my cold chocolate. That is quite sad. There's nothing sadder than a cold hot chalky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I got home and microwaved it, mm. which I don't know how good that is. Vibes. PAs leaching into it, but <laughs> I needed to do what I needed to do. Yeah. Oh, and also my, oh, my brother wasn't home yet because, so my brother is staying with me at the moment because he's in between houses and um, he wasn't home yet because he was, he's at his house. Like he texted me that night and been like, oh, I'll go to my house and I'll, um, just clean some stuff and you text me when you're on your way home from the hospital come pick you up so he used to live in Brunswick um and then I get home it's 5 a.m he's not home oh no and I'm like motherfucker where are you I text him and I'm like Joshua where are you uh and then he calls me and he's like oh shit I fell asleep in my car uh so he comes over and we've both like not eaten dinner so then we went to Macca's. Once again, the vibes at 5 a.m. Altona North Macca's drive through just as you'd expect. Yeah. Rancid once again. Uh, yeah. Absolute we, chaos. Yeah. But we got some breakfast. Oh, Josh got a breakfast burger. I got a Happy Meal. Amazing. And I got a little Sonic the Hedgehog toy. Oh, my God. So adorable. Sometimes I've been at, sometimes I've been at Macca's drive through and asked for a, a Happy Meal. And they've been like, oh, book or toy. And I'm like, oh, book. What? The two genders. <laughs> I was like, uh, toy. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine our parents would have got, we, would have made us choose the book. Books. Have I told you about this really lovely um, heartwarming moment from my childhood where my parents would take me to Toys R Us and they'd be like, you can pick any toy as long as it's educational. My parents wouldn't even do that. They'd just be like, oh, here's a nice gift for you. And it was one of those like um, 
yeah, uh, applying for scholarships work. Oh no! Stop the X, the Acer ones, not Acer, Acer ones. XL. Yeah, Excel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly the ones, and you're so right that. Oh my god, we need to. No, no, no. We can't do this. I can't. I can't go back. Something and I think that people it, should know about Danushi and I is that even though my parents are very white and Danushi's parents are very brown, we had the same childhood. Yeah, very ethnic coded childhood. Yeah. And with that, I think it's time to throw to a song. So here's um, If This Was a Movie by Casey Musgraves. Love you. This is Bell Hooks and Jaws on Radio Fodder with Sam and Danushi. And that was If This Was a Movie by Casey Musgraves. And now you are listening to Bell Hooks and Jars on Radio Fodder with Sam and Danushi. Sam, over to you for some gender theory, for some spicy, spicy gender theory. Yeah, I'm very excited for this. Um, I love this stuff. So we're talking about uh, the male gaze today. We're talking about... Uh, Laura- oh, it's not about Frankie Grande. Um, we're talking about the male gaze and I'm just going to break down, to begin with, I'm going to break down Laura Mulvey's article, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which is a seminal text in feminist theory, cinema, feminist media criticism. It's from 1975. Laura Mulvey is a feminist film theorist and filmmaker. And this came out of, I'll link a interview in our show notes. This came out of, as Mulvey was involved in sort of a, you know, a class consciousness, a gain of class consciousness as a woman, in the women's movement in England. As a filmmaker and a film enjoyer, she started to become alienated from film. And this article is pinpointing like why she is experiencing this alienation as she is becoming more and more of a feminist and not just um, somebody who understands feminism but really lives feminism. So, yeah, I'm basically just going to scroll through it and break it down quickly so that we can all understand. It starts with a, an explanation that she is using psychoanalytic theory and why she's using it, which I think is a really, um, a really great and useful way to use psycho- psychoanalytic theory in feminism as a way of describing, breaking down phallocentrism, which is a concept where like society is organized by the symbolic order and the phallus is the center of that which is not just the penis but it is the um kind of the idea of the penis and uh the idea of the power that that holds or that bestows yeah so Um, the 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 order in which society is organized yeah yeah Um, yeah so just to bump in there bump in jump in there what Marvie says that it's a really good entry point because she believes that a lot of the patriarchy exists on a subconscious level and so um, psychoanalytics is a great entry point for us to explore that yeah because as I've said before like Freud is not condoning Freud is not um, encouraging Freud is describing exactly Um, and using the skills that and the resources that he had to describe the ways in which society functions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so given that, we start with... Just of, real quick, what yeah. is the male gaze in your opinion? The male gaze is, in my opinion, and from my understanding of Mulvey, the male gaze is not men looking at things, mm-hmm. which or the way men look, which I think it's often misinterpreted to be, especially mm-hmm. in popular feminist culture. Um, but it is a description of the um, language, the way in which cinema is constructed from the perspective of a male onlooker. Mm-hmm. It's a voyeuristic, um, it, yeah, it's, it's a description of the like inherent voyeuristic nature of cinema and mm-hmm. how as that is controlled by men often mm-hmm. that becomes um, an expression of a masculine subjectivity and a female feminine objectifying yeah so yeah I think that's that was great thank you you, do you think there's a difference between the gaze and the male gaze or is the the way the gaze operates is it operates under so much patriarchy that all gaze is the male gaze what are your thoughts there I think um speculatively one day we could we could come to a neutral gaze Mm -hmm. um but the way that yeah the way patriarchy operates and the way that um everyone experiences internalized patriarchy and internalized misogyny is thus that um in situations in which you know people think that oh, doing female gaze, it's often just a reversal of the male, or a replacement of the gender in the male gaze. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a female gay, you can say that the female gaze does not, well, yeah. female, it, femme gay. A femme gay, yeah, thank you. Female gaze <laughs> does not exist. I don't think it yet exists um, yeah. in a way that is helpful to society yeah. or is actually... Um, what people are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And yeah. more on that later. I'll let more you get on, back. We'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. So, um, yeah. So, Mulvey kind of positions this male gaze not just as one person looking, but it is a, a triangle, a triangular looking as the, um, the subject of the movie, the, like the protagonist, the filmmaker, the camera, and the um, person watching the film are all operating or cooperating to create this um, this gaze. We and that's really what made Mulvey uncomfortable watching these films, especially film noir films from the thirties, forties, fifties, Hitchcock, especially Psycho, and other Hitchcock films, um, but you know, the, when you start to unpack your societal, I don't know, like conditioning, conditioning, just... brainwashing, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> when you start to unpack that, it's, it's hard to continue to uh, be complicit in this gaze. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of cognitive dissonance there, right? Yes. Because you're, you're stuck, 
you don't really want to be a participant in it, but you can understand that in watching, you have no other option but to be a participant in that. Yes, exactly. And especially the way that it is, um, like I was saying to Danushi earlier, when you're watching Psycho by Hitchcock, in the famous shower scene, you are not, you are positioned in the viewpoint of the murderer. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you are like kind of, you're almost encouraged to empathize more with the murderer than with the victim. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an issue a lot with horror movies, um, but also all movies, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, even if you think of sort of strong female characters, um, Lara Croft comes to mind. Mm-hmm. She's that's just a male fantasy, but female. Yeah, I'm sorry, but to me, any movie with a male character is a horror movie to me, and <laughs> and I won't elaborate on that. No, and you you shouldn't have to. Um, if we're going back to the article, like she talks about uh, castration anxiety, she talks about the mirror stage, mm-hmm. Lacan, Freud as sort of where these concepts arise from, where these, um, it's sort of the return to these infantile neuroses is where this positioning of so female maybe, object. Maybe I'll ask, from. yeah, maybe I'll ask you mm. why, why the female gaze, or the, why the why male, the male gaze? gaze? Well, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it's sort of, Mulvey puts it as the title of the third section, woman's image, man is bearer of the look. Mm-hmm. So, but going back from that, Mulvey is um, like using psychoanalytic theory to describe how, um, you know, this, a man grows up in society um, mm-hmm goes through these developmental stages that Freud describes as well as castration anxiety as part of this and it's sort of the positioning of the self as opposed to um, the other which is woman and in these developmental stages the other is mother Um, and that's sort of it's that's sort of where this like voyeur voyeuristic um, fantasy comes from yeah that then goes into cinema. Uh, Mulvey says cinema satisfies a primordial wish for pleasurable looking, mm-hmm. but it also goes further developing scopophilia, which is um, like an erotic uh, looking mm-hmm. voyeuristic in its narcissistic aspect. So I think what we can talk about here is that like there's a inherent homoeroticism to, um, to the way that men right men if Mm -hmm. we're talking about superheroes especially um i'm thinking thor i'm thinking captain america Mm. where also like look i'm not really the person to i'm not the last person to to say what is or what is not um seen as desirable to women but from from what i hear from the heads (laughs) (laughs) thor isn't like thor isn't really the 
beauty standard in from the eyes of women. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, there's this like there's this desire for me- uh, this like fulfill it's for wish fulfillment for a man to see himself in a position where he is powerful he is saving the day he's getting the girl he's getting the job he's absolutely winning at life yeah and that's the male gaze as well yeah Um, because otherwise I think that's where you can kind of talk about the castration anxiety because if they're not if they are not saving the female then they're caught. They are. They're left. <laughs> they're left to fear the female if they can't. Yeah. And you know, this makes me think of like every Woody Allen movie ever, where you have the <laughs> yeah the um like annoying, disgusting man getting with the hottest woman alive. Yeah. I'm. Thinking, You're so think, right. It's so. I'm, it's such wish fulfillment. There. Yeah. I'm thinking Owen Wilson getting with both Rachel McAdams and Marion Cotillard in one film I'm like what the hell like make it make sense make it make sense yeah uh you know everything honestly everything Hmm. Woody Allen makes is just a perverse wish fulfillment yeah um the like they were on the the way that none of his movies like were probably evidence in court. Like they probably they should all should be. Have been. Same with um, Roman Polanski. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, continuing. continuing. So, yeah, this comes down to oh, here's a great quote in the article from Bud Bedeker. I'm going to say that as. Um, what counts is what the heroine provokes or rather what she represents. She is the one or rather the love or fear she inspires in the hero or else the concern he feels for her who makes him act the way he does. In herself, the woman is not the slightest important. Mm. Yeah. And uh, let's unpack that. Let's, yeah. Well, uh, Bobby goes on to unpack that, talking about how like <laughs> uh, buddy movies, buddy cop movies mm-hmm. two guys being dudes you can see that that women are not important and men don't care to see a woman involved think of like all of the oceans oh yeah movies oceans yeah what's other than the one with the besties rihanna <laughs> kate blanchett and hathaway I haven't seen any of the other ones. I just know I've that only one. seen that one, but I know yeah. that like the lack or George even Clooney or Yeah, George Clooney, whoever else is in those, the lack of women is in itself like the male gaze because women mm. aren't like women are a thing to be looked at, not a thing to be yeah. respected. Yeah. And I think that kind of takes us to this other thing that Malvi talks about is that mm. this active passive dichotomy when yeah. when it comes to um in quotation marks men and women in in film because the female um form or the female characters are usually they stall the narrative right whereas the protagonist the male protagonist drives the narrative and is the one that's even when even as to 
even with what you were saying with that psycho thing it's the pro- it's the protagonist we in the eyes of the mm. act we are looking through sorry the eyes of the active male yeah and we're driving the narrative yeah. whereas the female is passively slowing down the narrative but also providing some kind of erotic aesthetic pleasure yeah and also like uh Mulvey talks about this in the concept of well it within the practice of cinematography as well as we were talking about mm. the psycho but yeah it's the it's it's a it's a voyeurism it is mm. through and through male subject yeah as voyeur to a female object yeah um and just to add one tiny tad bit there yeah. is yeah. that Mulvey even talks about like the auditorium in yeah. and of itself is made to, uh, it's like uh, instills that kind of voyeurism because you in the dark are in these mm. seats, whereas the movie playing is like in beautiful technicolor and, mm. you know, you're in the dark looking. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great point to wrap this much yeah. up. Uh, so, Danushi, what's the next song? Let's throw to Video Phone by Beyonce. This has been Bell Hooks and Jazz on Radio Fodder with Danushi and Sam. So that was Beyonce's infamous Video Phone. You're listening to Bell Hooks and Jazz with Sam and Danushi. Sam. On Radio Fodder. On Radio Fodder. Yeah. What do you have to say for yourself, Sam? Well... The next thing I want to say, the next thing we're going to talk about is a concept of a female gaze and whether or not it exists. Mm-hmm. So I did some really professional research for this. Um, I pulled up youtube.com, mm. https colon slash slash www.youtube.com. Mm. And I searched male gaze. Mm-hmm. Some of the top, some of the top things were the male gaze is why you're ugly. And that's the title of the video or male versus female gaze, how media profits from your gender. So it's, it's a lot of talking about um, extrapolating this idea from cinematography into uh, everyday life, which I think is not helpful. Mm-mm. And no. it is a, I think it's a gross misunderstanding of what uh, Mulvey's actually saying. Yeah. And I think it's more helpful to talk about patriarchy, internalised patriarchy, internalised capitalism when you're thinking about, you know, the way you perceive yourself and the way you want to be perceived rather Mm. than um, it is to talk about this male gaze, which is, I don't think, relevant to talking about whether or not Timothy Chalamet is or is not conventionally attractive. Mm. Firstly, because I don't that's care. I don't care that's just about convention, isn't it? That's yeah. not really. That's more about convention and standards than it is about looking in the language of. Looking. And it, but it's once again breaking down, or you know, corrupting this very complex mm. film theory idea back just into men looking at women, mm, which is very on, true. only like less than a third of what the idea of the male gaze actually is mm-hmm. so from here um i've seen a lot of discourse online on the tiktok of you know men written by women so and so is a man written by women 
men who are attractive but not in a homoerotic way that men deem as attractive are written by women um pete davidson we mentioned timothy chalamet whichever skinny white boy of the month exactly i sorry the skinny white boy of the month is not the female gaze and so no that is that's just like that's just the internet being i it makes me very it pisses me off almost fat phobic uh yeah fat phobic also it's always a white man yeah it's always it's always a straight white man something that i found really funny recently is um bridgerton Mm. the women online freaking out about how the male lead in season two of bridgerton the actor is gay and it's a similar in real life or gay in in real life okay um and but it's a similar freaking out to what occurred with fleabag okay which the hot priest in season two as played by andrew scott who's not a scott he's irish (laughs) um he and he's even said himself like women think i'm so attractive i'm not that hot my character just listens to fleabag that's all it takes the bar is on the floor the bar is (laughs) the bar is in in the the bar is in the earth yeah yeah i too have seen a lot of twitter being obsessed with like whatever shitty dialogue is in bridgerton and i'm like if someone ever talked to me like that shut up i would shoot myself it's so like yeah 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 um so like that pisses me off Mm so um and rightfully so thank you but something I did find that was very interesting and I think actually really helpful was a keynote address um, by Joey Soloway, who mm-hmm. is a writer and director of TV, um, who has done, among other things, Transparent is probably their most famous. That's on uh, Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Also, their pronouns are they, them, just so everybody knows. Um, yeah, and in this keynote address, they are investigating the notion of the male gaze, whether that's actually a thing, what it means. Um, yeah, and I think this is, I'm just going to describe what they talked about because I think this is really great. And I think if we are going from Mulvey's idea of the male gaze, Soloway's mm. idea of the female gaze is where we should go. Yeah, a good transgression. Forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they talk about like the male gaze is pretty much everything it's a superhero action it's horror movies it's ex machina it's her it's you know every movie that is about a male subject um experiencing a female object or a male or guys being dudes that's the male gaze Mm. um yeah yeah the female gaze that we've been offered is a reversal, a gender reversal, which is not helpful. Playgirl, no. Magic Mike, Chippendales, you know, mm-hmm. reversing this male protagonist into a female protagonist 
like I mentioned Lara Croft before or um, Captain Marvel, all these people, all these characters, it's still the male gaze because it mm. is just the male fantasy but putting a woman in the, in the male's position. Yeah. Like It's a simple yeah. substitution and I really don't want anything to do with it, to be no. honest. No, yeah. Um, and an- another important thing that Soloway talks about is that art is propaganda. Art is propaganda for, um, it's everyone writing propaganda about themselves and for themselves. And protagonism, this is a great quote, protagonism is propaganda that protects and propagates privilege. Okay. Some intense uh, (laughs) uh, alliteration there. Yeah. But I I, shall I say it again and slowly so that we can... Unpack it, yeah. Protagonism... So this concept that, you know, we have a, a single human subject from whose perspective everything is experienced mm-hmm. is propaganda that protects and propagates privilege. Right. So this idea that um, we have, you know, the hero's tale, which is a singular experience that is a person moving through space and time and winning and conquering that is who is often this person winning and conquering it is a male savior often a white savior Mm -hmm. it's the knights saving the damsel in distress it's um sandra bullock in uh what's that movie where blind side the blind side exactly thank you yeah so never seen it, but yeah. I think I saw it in 2008 and I don't remember it. Yeah. But I, you know, checks I, yeah. it checks out. Yeah. I don't remember the hard facts, but I remember the vibes and that's mm-hmm. more important. So Soloway's female gaze is just like Mulvey's male gaze is a triangle. Soloway's female gaze is also a triangle, but not as person, person, person doing the gaze. It is three points that we are going to use to construct a female gaze in cinema. Mm-hmm. Number one, reclaiming the body, using it as a tool on set. It is about feeling, seeing. The person watching is, it's the female gaze puts us in a position where we are not looking at feelings, right. but we are feeling, seeing. Yeah, so it's a subversion of the spectatorship or yes. the voyeurism. It's, it's a participation. And lovely, okay. And so the subjective, the male gaze has a subjective camera, which is attempting to get um, inside the protagonist's mind, mm-hmm. which is a cis male. But if we, uh, well, it's sorry, no, I'm going to cut that out. Instead, instead of this objective camera that is documenting facts, what we want is a subjective camera that is getting inside the mind and the feeling of characters who are not cis males. Mm -hmm. And we're trying, the female gaze reclaiming the body is trying to provoke the feeling of being in feeling rather than yeah looking at feeling the camera 
the camera and the cinematographer is an active participant expressing right. a feeling as they record. Right. So it's a more, yeah. Well, you you say so. It's a more like immersive experience, is what you're saying. Yes, it's an immersive emotional experience. Soloway yeah. talks about this in their own praxis in their filmmaking. Is that they will say, firstly, they are on on the set in the scene rather than in video village observing. They are in the scene and they are saying to the cinematographer okay, in this take, I want you to um, express or feel as you are filming this, like yearning, Mm -hmm. longing, desire, an emotion. The cinematographer is like, I don't know how much acting experience you have, Danushi, (laughs) but I... um, Absolutely none. Okay, because I was very lucky to go to a high school that had a really great drama program that I was quite involved in and we had a really great teacher um, and I, you know, I, I learned a lot from her and this experience of, you know, if you're putting an adjective to your performance as an actor, well, Soloway is describing that we can do that, the cinematographer can have that as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Soloway says... I can tell a woman directed something because I can feel with it and I feel held in my body. It's about a corporeal experience. It is prioritizing, and this is a great thing as well, that is very subversive. It is prioritizing bodies over equipment, schedule, lighting, and money. Interesting. You know, I think what like Soloway is really interrupting here is this um, almost fascistic concept of the director. We talked about Woody Allen before. Um, Also Clint Eastwood comes to mind, this director who is like a dictator on set, who tells you where you will be, how you will express uh, exactly how long it'll take and and, you know, the studio as well, also often run by male executives, dictate how much money will be spent. But if we are going for this reclaiming of the body, using it as a tool on set, we are prioritising the body and the feeling of emotion and the feelings um, and the experience of experiencing, which acting is, over mm-hmm. these capitalistic things interesting um everything's looking back to the body yeah so it's more grounding than yes it is um escapism but that grounding and that um it's almost escapism in a meditative sense than a whatever perhaps not even escapism but like um bringing you back into yourself yeah it's, I feel like this is in a similar way that poetry often does. You are experiencing through your own experience. So when you right. watch it, mm, like okay. when you read poetry, you can't right. just, which often, you know, a male gaze language in cinema does, it is portraying you 
the portraying to you the facts of a situation and from that we get the emotions yeah. and it is a the emotions are a consequence of the acts yeah but if we're using this language of a female gaze it's less about that and more about the emotion yeah. the emotional experience through it the yeah. second thing is showing us how it feels to be the receiver of the gaze Mm-hmm. that's the second part of the female gaze um it's a her- it's the heroine's journey it's a coming of age journey of how you become what men see this makes me think of the second sex especially the um part two which is about like developmental stages and mm-hmm. how one becomes one is not born but becomes woman this is how we become woman yeah um it, uh, it's and the heroine's journey which rather than hero's journey going out doing things being the protagonist it's a looping around inside of the body revealing an ever more intense awareness of the heroine's power it's how the heroine which can be a man heroine's journey can be with a male protagonist but it's about um how they how they come to understand and, and be in and and be in their power mm-hmm. Uh, part three of this female gaze is returning the gaze. Daring to say, I see you seeing me. And I don't think this has been done much yet, mm-hmm. but it's about how it feels to stand here in the world, having been seen, having, having been seen your entire life, but standing there um, expressing how it feels to be the one seeing, being seen rather than the one looking. This is not a gender reversal. It's like, it, it's what Soloway describes this as is a sociopolitical justice demanding way of making art. Okay. And it makes For some me- reason, this it, is reminding me of like in the office when they'll like do a little look to the camera also it reminds me of a- anything that does that um flea bag yeah and also great excellent wonderful tv show that i don't think enough people have seen and i will shout about it to the ends of the earth gentleman jack which is um written by a woman directed by a woman it is about Anne lister who's the first modern lesbian she lived in 18 the 1830s she died in 1840 i think um and she was openly uh, and un, without shame, queer. She did not have the words for it, but mm-hmm. she was also very Christian and religious. And she believed that her, um, she, the only natural way she knew to exist was loving women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, the TV show starring Saran Jones as Anne Lister, uh, is excellent. It is about her experience of finding her partner, Anne Walker, which she did, and um, they basically, well, they got married. Without, mm-hmm. um, they got married, they, they exchanged rings and vows on Easter Sunday in 1834 in a church and they took communion together 
Um, and there is a plaque on the church in Yorkshire where they, I think it's in York itself, where that happened. It's been put up recently, but this was also very buried. She took very extensive diaries. Anyway, the TV show not only is about both Anne Walker and Anne Lister's very, um, their subjective experiences of their sexuality, but it's also a lot from Anne, Anne Lister's diary. And it contains a lot of direct camera, which is hmm. really fun. Yeah. And a similar thing happens as it does in Fleabag, where you find the person who um, understands you more than anyone ever does. And then they start noticing you looking to the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this discussion of like returning the gaze made me think of Manet's Olympia, which Never is heard of it. <laughs> a, we'll, I'll, we'll put it in uh, our Instagram post. I might have to censor it. Little emojis over the nips. But um, <laughs> uh, Manet's Olympia, is, it's a painting. Race? No, it's oh. a painting. <laughs> it's a painting. It sounds from... like a drag queen's name. I'm sorry. Manet's Olympia. Honestly, that, yeah. that'd be a great. Yeah, that'd be a great drag name. But it's a, it's a painting where, and it was a very, like, shocking painting at the time because instead of the naked female form being um, passive and observed by an implied male voyeur, Olympia is looking directly at the viewer. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, look, there's some... She has her black servant behind her which is a bit uh, but <laughs> you know in this context I think it's great I will mm -hmm. link below the masterclass keynote address that Soloway gave mm -hmm. it is excellent everybody should watch it and shall we go to a song let's do a little bit of a quick recap before we do okay so let's let's sum up the female gaze in in a few words like to me what um from what you've told us it remind it <clears throat> gives me the impression that the female gaze is a lot about being more than just a spectator and being and being more than just a spectator being more than just an actor so being more than just these roles and yeah I think that gives that results in an immersive um, experience for everyone the actors yeah the viewers, cinematographer um, viewer yeah. as a um the viewer is an active participant yeah. an active participant in the emotional content of what is occurring yeah that's really where it comes down to yeah. and again the rather than seeing feeling feeling mm. seeing yeah and that that transgresses from the once thought objective viewer mm. experience right because mm. it's we all bring something to the film or mm. the me or the um whatever media we're watching and that and we in participating in the film we like are part of the making of the movie exactly as the viewer exactly well, Lovely. song time. Song? song time. Video kills the radio. The radio star by the Buggles. Great choice, Danushi. Video mm -hmm. killed the radio star. 
This is Bell Hooks and Giles on Radio Fodder. You're with Sam and Danushi. So that was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles and you're listening to Bell Hooks and Giles on Radio Fodder with Sam and Danushi. And now our long-awaited discussion on Gilmore Girls. Sam, how are you feeling Ooh, about this? I'm feeling amazing. I'm feeling wonderful. I'm feeling fantastic. Follow you. Anyway. Oh, yeah, this is going to sound awful over our Zoom. Um, so Tanush and I were chatting last night as we were researching. And also something Tanush and I do is that we constantly have Gilmore Girls on as our emotional support TV show. Yeah. We're and both chronically is... ill. Yeah. And we need something to get us through the day. And that's it's Gilmore Girls. Not a, that's not hyperbolic. Like we, it's actually <laughs> always on. It's literally like, and also we love to, um, when we're both feeling lonely and we're both sick, just Netflix party each other. And yeah. so it's like we're watching together, but we're not together. You know, everybody for everybody else, lockdown is over. For us, yeah. Yeah. For us uh cripples, it is not. No. Um yeah. So, so yeah, Gilmore Girls gets us through it. It, it yeah. really yeah. I'm gonna give a quick, very quick, mm. like, what is Gilmore Girls? For those those that aren't in the know, Gilmore Girls yeah. was a TV show on the WB, which is now the CW, between 2000 and 2007, mm. written, directed, created, show run by Amy Sherman Palladino, who is a girl boss. Um, mm. And from our research and from what we were talking about, I was like, Gilmore Girls is the pink print for a cinematic female gaze. Yeah. So, I'm going to have to agree with you there. Yeah. I'm going to, I've got notes here, so I'm just going to start saying words. Um, and if you want to jump in at any time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into in. it. Yeah. Okay. Get into it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so my first point is, while Amy Sherman Palladino is the writer and wants her work to be executed exactly word perfect, which she has said and, she, and the actors have also said, Mm-hmm. Um, the words and there are a lot of them are only a medium for emotion it's less about what is being said it is about the um, emotional and social undercurrents in these mm-hmm. um, monologues yeah and I think this is like in opposition to what I my example this is in opposition to is The West Wing by Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm which was same era, just as wordy, also does walk and talk. Um, but the lines uh, and the show is about scoring wins and saving the country, whereas Gilmore Girls, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. Yeah. Nothing happens. It's all yeah. about emotion. Yeah, and that's what I think makes it radical in my eyes is that yeah. I personally think, oh, well, I'm sure I'm not the first one to ever think this, but hmm. the whole idea and structure of narrative as we know it with um, a problem, a climax, a resolution, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I think that, again, feeds into um, deriving pleasure as a spectator. And that is that is it's a very traditionally, like, feminist yeah. psychoanalytic perspective to take that um, both the traditional narrative structure 
and also in music um the sonata form uh mm. is so it's build 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 explosive uh, pinnacle da, da, da. yeah explosive pinnacle and fall it's men fucking it's people yeah. it's guys yeah it's it's an an erotic male climax if you will no yeah so also something i was thinking today is that mm-hmm. Sorkin is treated like an auteur, mm. whereas Amy Sherman Palladino is not. Yeah. There's some real sexism in, they were doing like yeah, pretty much me, the same thing. Remind me again how many Emmys Amy Sherman Palladino has won. I don't know if she's won. Not oh, for well, Gilmore Girls, I don't no, think. But think she's the, won them for Miss Maisel. Yeah. But so the, I think the only... Um, Emmy that Gilmore Girls won was for like makeup or something right yeah and they got um they did I think they got a teen choice best kiss oh amazing that's fun I I feel like it was an early season I feel like it could have been either a Dean Rory or the one where Jess and Rory kiss at the wedding okay and then spoilers just just, (laughs) um spoilers for a 20 year old tv show um you should have all watched it by now. Yeah. And if you yeah. haven't, stop listening. Go watch it. Go watch yeah. seven seasons. Yeah. And as you were saying, like, about, like, the male climax, like, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. There is, it's never, like, building to a climax in the TV no. show, in the episode, or in, like, I don't even think within the se- series, like, the season. Mm-hmm. I think it's just lots of little peaks and valleys mm-hmm. throughout exactly. the whole thing. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's uh, feminine, I think. Yeah, it's feminine and also, again, uh, capitalism and all of that mm. stuff is also wired and interlinked together. And mm. I think that I, especially for American TV, mm. that idea of having not really a plot and not much to, yeah. like, turn into ads and all like yeah. um uh, I don't know ads yeah I forget Product like placement yeah 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 and uh that again makes it radical as well in that sense and also like comparing it to West Wing mm-hmm. West Wing is literally I've actually seen West Wing so you can have to bother. give me a render. West yeah. Wing is a tv show by Aaron Sorkin about staffers in the White House yeah I've seen Veep so I yeah. can imagine what it's, this is like. It's Veep, but like early 2000s. Yeah. So, and everything that that had to hold. It was kind of like a... Um, was it making fun of a particular presidency? No, it, was, it wasn't It was at all. It was kind of like a wish fulfillment as if if Bush had never been elected. Oh, okay, gotcha. gotcha so they've gotcha. got, it's a Democratic um, leader, right? A, a Dem president and, you know, but still doing war crimes etc etc okay but it's all in the name of freedom (laughs) patriotism okay and white people are superior um american cultural and actual hegemony (laughs) exactly military industrial complex once again words for everyone to google in their own time (laughs) yeah Um, the american industrial complex yes yeah um Back on Gilmore Girls, mm-hmm. 
what we were saying yesterday is it's not feminist. Like, it's not specifically like this is a feminist show. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it is so, like, a specifically female experience, like, we didn't even say what the show's about. So <laughs> the show is about mother and daughter, Lorelai and Rory. Rory is also called Lorelai Gilmore. Lorelai had Rory when she was 16. Lorelai comes from a... Money, money, shmoney. Money, 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 socialite wasp family, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, her father, Richard, is a international insurance broker. Mm-hmm. And, and also just old money. Old, yeah, they, they've mentioned several times that the Gilmores came over on the Mayflower. Yeah, that means nothing to me. I'm sorry. That was life. the first first lot of um, yeah, British people, people to go to America. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Um, money, money, money. So... Lorelai has Rory when she's 16 in that before that she'd been in private schools in that she is like completely excommunicated from her, Mm -hmm. the the social world within within she'd been raised. Um, And so she moves to the town of Stars Hollow, which is, I think it's like 50 Ks away or something. Yeah. (laughs) I think they say like 30 miles, but. I don't remember what number it was in miles. No, it's we around transferred it, trans, We trans... What's the word? We switched it converted. into metric. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we converted it into metric and I remembered that something number. Around, something around yeah. there. Yeah. It's about 50Ks. It's also a fictional town and it is very... It, it's, it's a perfect... But it's just so real, isn't it's it? It's so real. Um, so she moves to Stars Hollow... Mm-hmm. The story begins when Rory is 16, so the age Lorelai was when she had Rory. Mm-hmm. Lorelai is 32. Lorelai is now the manager of an inn, and mm-hmm. the um, inciting incident is that Rory gets into a private school called Chilton, but mm-hmm. Lorelai does not have the money to pay the deposit for her to go. So she has to make contact with her parents. Mm-hmm. to get a loan and, and the and the story ensues I feel like we can leave it but the, well the 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 she gets the loan but yeah the condition of the loan is that mm-hmm. they have Friday night dinners yeah and the story goes from there yeah which then allows for that relationship between Lorelai and her family to grow and continue grow and then shrink and then grow and shrink and then blow up and then grow and then shrink yeah yeah it's turbulent um Mm -hmm. we see what i think makes this female gaze is my 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 way of putting it is um female gaze is feelings don't care about your facts Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so because that suggests that we're moving to a language of mm. feelings rather than rather than a language of objectivity and so that brings about that immersive experience that you were detailing yeah. before immersing yeah. yourself in um being vi- and and the audience being invited to sit in the emotions with the characters exactly 
which um how yeah. do you think how do you think Gilmore Girls does that how does it invite us to sit I am going to describe Gilmore Girls as radical as it is a show that is dominated by radical empathy mm-hmm. yeah there are no there are no purely bad characters there mm-hmm. are characters who do complicated things yeah. because of complicated reasons. Yeah. Also, the camera is a tool for empathy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I really like about it, and this is an example of the camera being used as a tool for empathy, there is no stigma attached to being a difficult teenager in the show. Mm-hmm. Like, while... Rory and her best friend Lane, very straight edge, very um, focused, studious. The introduction of the character Jess, who Mm -hmm. his mum has kicked him out. Um, He's, you know, a bit of a... He's... Troublemaker. He's a troublemaker, but he's not malicious. No. But he's, he's a teenager who's quite lost and doesn't have has never had a strong parental figure to rely on. Mm-hmm. He comes to town and he is treated with complete empathy. And also the music, Amy Sherman Palladino's use of music helps to create this empathy mm-hmm. and for you to feel with the character. So the day he arrives in town, he's Luke, his uncle who runs the diner that, that the Gilmores eat at every day. He moves in with his uncle and he is... Very, I think for that section of the episode, we're invited to be on Luke's side. Mm-hmm. Like he's coming up against this teenager who's giving him one word, one mm-hmm. syllable answers. Yeah. And then Jess says, I'm going out. And Luke's like, mm-hmm. where to? And he's like, I don't know, just out. And as he steps out of the diner, the, the cinematography goes to, instead of looking at him, we're looking from his perspective as he sweeps across the town, this tiny town. He's also from New York. So he's moved from New York to this podunk town in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and the song, I don't know the name of the song, but the, the words begin, this is hell, this is hell, I am sorry to tell you. Mm-hmm. Hell, yeah. Like saying, and you're like feeling with him. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I'll add there is that part of that immersion is obviously, like you said, the music, but also, yes, there are main characters per Mm. se, but it is not as though these secondary characters lack any depth at all. Like they all have fully fleshed personalities, fully fleshed, um, backstories they also fully fully fleshed emotions and I think that's like you were saying like in that moment Luke who is probably is he's like an in-between main slash secondary character like he's an important honestly I would say it's more of an ensemble cast yeah like like obviously Rory and Lorelai are the main characters but Mm -hmm. there is this host of characters around them that influence them and their lives and so much so that it's like the line between protagonist is kind of blurred 
Mm. And even the fact that it's dual protagonists in Rory and Lorelai. And even I would say, as the show progresses, Emily, Lorelai's mother. So the the Gilmore girls are not just Rory and Lorelai, it's Emily as well. It's also to a degree uh, Richard's Richard's mother, mother, Trix. Um, And you see, like, Matrilineal succession. <laughs> yeah. Patrilineal <laughs> succession is like a big thing there. But also something I really like is you see conflict between mother and daughter, mother and daughter, mother and mother, a daughter and mother-in-law. Yeah. Like that. And mm-hmm. Lorelai and Rory are really close, but also like there's complicated reasons for mm. why they're close. Yeah. And Emily, I think a character that you really grow with compassion and empathy for is Emily. Yeah. Who is um, the... Tell us about Emily. Trish. Emily. So Emily, I'm not going to diagnose her, but she <laughs> Do. probably Do has it. a tinge of narcissistic personality disorder and is yeah. extremely concerned with maintaining kind of their uh, wealthy bourgeoisie facade. And oh, not, not even bourgeoisie. They are upper class. They are. Yeah, yeah. They are top 1%. Yeah. More money than they know what to do with. Exactly. $40,000 on Rory's sex house. Exactly. Exactly. Little, little reference so, for those who understand. <laughs> so, again, that kind of class uh, disconnect, I wouldn't even call it disconnect, but um, what am I saying again? Yes, so Emily is that matriarchal figurehead not even she's not but like she she can't my view of Emily my view of Emily is that she is and this is maybe we'll talk about this one day Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft this feels like a major diversion 1792 Vindication of the Rights of Women Mary Wollstonecraft writes the first feminist text that talks about what happens when women of means aren't afforded education and aren't afforded things to do in their life they Mm -hmm. become oh that's perfect that's exactly what she is yeah they become meddling in other people's affairs trying to (laughs) um mastermind things becoming gossips and socialites and this is what emily is like yeah it's all she's been allowed to be yeah because when you're not afforded those things you sorry such as education and work etc you resort to these other things to make meaning from your life really yeah and And you start to make meaning from other people's lives because you yeah almost don't have your own and I think one of the things that is meaning making in her life is her status oh Mm -hmm. her status is like important to her to the point where her daughter's well-being is less important than their social standing yeah yeah, um, and I think this is another great thing about the show is that mothers in general are treated with a lot of empathy. And I want to contrast this with other 
shows, um, especially, well, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino are Jewish. And there is a real, um, there's a real trope in comedy, especially Jewish written comedy, especially mm-hmm. written by men, of annoying meddlesome mothers. Yeah. Who never have any more dimension than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something I love about ASPs. Or just Jewish women in general, right? Like, But especially they, mothers. Especially yeah. mothers. Um, I was even, I read a little article about this. I'll link it in the show notes. And mm-hmm. I was also reading from Adrienne Rich's book of Woman Born about this, talking about it's sort of this... Um, you can see it as like a misdirection of the Oedipal complex um, in that like it just, it goes the wrong way and the mother is trying to, well, there's, there's the escaping, trying to escape from the womb and the confines of the desire of the mother. Um, but also it's a, it's a, also a variation of the Oedipus complex to become really resentful and um, mocking and, um, oh, look at her and her silly little women's things about a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that doesn't happen in, I don't think, any of the mothers. And a lot of the mothers, you start off looking at them, oh, they're so annoying, they're so frustrating. Mm-hmm. But then as the show continues, again, we're invited to see them with empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that we don't have that singular objective protagonist because yeah. in having more dimension to the viewpoint, you can you have the luxury of being able to go into all of this depth. Yeah. Right. And also, so... I'm going to rattle off a list of mothers in a show because mm-hmm. it's a lot. We've really got... smash, smash all past the mothers. I'm kidding. They're all smashes, honestly. Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> um, so we've got, firstly, in the Gilmore family, we've got Trix, who was Lorelai the first, mm-hmm. Emily, Lorelai, Rory. Rory's not a mother. Ooh. Well, Year Ooh. in the Life, at the very, very last, spoiler, very last line of Year in the Life, we find out that she is pregnant. Um so Ms. we don't really Kim. know much about Trix, but yeah. she's kind of here nor there. She dies pretty soon on. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, she will, we are given the impression that she's like, is quite philanthropic and I'm guessing she, she's she quite well-educated. She rents her house out to Corn the band. <laughs> Never heard of them. Like oh, I've heard of them from the, from the from show. The show. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, so then we've got Mrs. Kim. We've got, and also Shira Huntsberger. We've got, uh, who else becomes a mother? Lane Kim becomes a mother. Mm-hmm. Liz. Liz. Who is, uh, who, who is Jess's mother? Who's Jess's mother. And it's sort of, I think, Emily and Liz are like kind of two opposing sides of the same coin. And I think. Oh, I think, I've. Please do. Mm. Um, I please. think the differences between them is class. 
Okay. So Emily has a teenager who's too much for her and she's awful too. Mm, okay. Uh, but it comes from a place of, you know, you just need to go and pull your socks up and mm-hmm. that stuff. Liz okay. has a teenager who's awful. And also Emily just, like, abandons Lorelai when Lorelai moves mm. out with her baby. Right. And even though I'm sure Emily would put it very differently that Lorelai right. abandoned yeah. her. Right. Um, you know, who's the vulnerable person in this situation? Freshly, mu- fresh yeah. mum, 16 years old, <laughs> with yeah. a tiny baby. Um, well then you could yeah I was gonna say in that case you can also then read a lot of similarities between Jess and Lorelai who I think are protesting like they're yeah they're just so and then the difference with Liz Liz is um pretty working class her father owned a hardware store uh lives in New York she has struggled to keep men around um, and she, I think she has really struggled with being a mother and in the lack of support that she's mm-hmm. in, um, she doesn't know what else to do but to send Jess to Luke. Yeah, interesting. And Jess then like Lorelai did to Emily, Jess no longer wants to speak to his mum. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then, you know, later on we come back around to, we come, we come, we're later invited to have more empathy for Liz again when she's pregnant and she kicks her husband TJ out and says, you're not going to be able to, be a father she really projects onto tj the anxieties that she has about her own parenting that came Mm -hmm. from how she dealt with jess Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. another important mother who's also similar to emily but it's class and race that separates them is mrs kim do you want to tell us about mrs kim yes so we have lane who is the resident ethnic character but <laughs> other than other Michel, than... True, 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 true. but also he's French so. <laughs> um but I guess she's not really tokenized no um but so yeah so Mrs Kim is her um Korean mother who you see again the that generational divide that most immigrant families feel between the first generation and then the second generation Mm. and you know especially in you have those western influences coming in and adding to that um disconnect Mm. there and so what you can see in Mrs Kim is a lot of wanting to preserve her more traditional beliefs and also like preserve what she thinks is important in life and to do that through Mm. her daughter and also I think preserving her rebellion 
So mm, we find out look at it. we find out at Lane's wedding that um, Mrs. Kim's mother, Mrs. Was Mrs. A Buddhist. Kim, was yes. Buddhist, um, and does not know about Mrs. Kim being a Seventh Day Adventist, and so they have to do a fake wedding for <laughs> for the grandmother, who then hops mm-hmm. in her car, goes back to Seoul, and. Well, hops in the taxi. <laughs> and then they do the, the quote-unquote proper wedding at yeah. the local church that's really for Mrs. And then King. they have... And then they and have then the they after have party. The after party. The reception. Which is for Lane. Which is for Lane. So there's a lot of cultural layers. Mm. And so, like, being an Adventist and being religious is Mrs. Kim's form of rebellion. Yeah. Um, so when... Lane is rejecting that. I think she feels, or we we think we are invited to feel as if she feels her daughter is rejecting what set her free. Yeah. And Lorelai says to um, Lane, what if your daughter wants to be a churchgoer? Yeah. Which, again, like, what we see is a lot of, just circular dimensional storylines where mm. things things I don't even know it's just good I'm sorry I'm tired yeah. no me too don't worry um other other notes I have oh um how neurodivergent is the show and yet extremely extremely we joke that there is very few neurotypical people in Stars Hollow and the people that are neurotypical in the show um we they are derided for uh ridiculing the people that we come to love in Stars Hollow so great examples of neurodivergent icons Lorelai herself that's ADHD right there yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna diagnose characters right now. <laughs> Lorelai is yeah, ADHD. Kirk autism. Luke autism. Mm-hmm. Um oh Digger autism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Paris, that's autism. That is so autistic. Also, yeah. Also, I'm I am neurodivergent. I'm ADHD autism. So before anyone starts yeah. to mm, me. I have lived yeah. experience. <laughs> um, who else? Oh, I don't know what's going on with the bet, but she's there's neurodivergence there. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Dosey, he loves a rule. 